Welcome to Rheumatology for the Royal College, where we aim to bring you reviews that will strengthen your knowledge going into exams and clinical encounters. We hope you'll find it useful and enjoyable, whether you're running, lifting, cooking, grocery shopping, driving, you get the idea. I'm your host, Dr. Kareem Ladakh, an American-trained Canadian rheumatologist. Before we start, my lawyer advised that I should say the information here only reflects what I have in my personal notes and should not be used in isolation in the management of patients nor for your boards. I'd like to thank the McPherson Institute and Abby for supporting this podcast through their educational grants. However, it should be noted they have absolutely no editorial say in its production. ANCA-associated vasculitis encompasses three diseases. Granulomatosis with polyangiitis, also known as GPA, formerly known as Wegner's. Microscopic polyangiitis, also known as MPA and eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka EGPA, formerly known as Churg-Strauss, which is kind of unique compared to the other two, and so we're going to give it its own dedicated 10 minutes at the end of today's episode. The reason we call GPA, MPA, and EGPA ANCA-associated vasculitides is because they're tied together by the finding of ANCA antibodies, namely MPO ANCA, and PR3 ANCA. Epidemiology. These are pretty rare diseases. We're talking incidence rates annually of 10 out of every million people, but rates do vary by geography and ethnicity. So GPA, for example, increases in frequency as you get further away from the equator and is more common in white individuals, whereas MPA is the more common ANCA-associated vasculitis in East Asia. EGPA is the rarest of all three. ANCA affects men and women equally. The average age of onset is in the 40s to 70s for GPA and MPA, and slightly younger between the 30s and 50s for EGPA. Pathophysiology. Long story short, normally MPO, or myeloperoxidase, and PR3, or proteinase 3, are components of healthy neutrophils contained in granules within the neutrophils and they do not do any harm except when they're supposed to, like when you've got a cut or an infection and the neutrophils hone to that area, they degranulate, and they cause some damage. That's how it normally works. But in GPA and MPA, neutrophils start misbehaving. So if you have a genetically susceptible host with an altered immune system, who's perhaps older and the warranty's starting to run out, and you expose them to known environmental triggers for ankyvasculitis, like silica, or smoking, or nasal carriage of staph A, then you get various malfunctions within the neutrophils. So neutrophils start expressing more MPO and PR3, not only in their granules, but also in the cell surfaces. This leads to T helper cells losing tolerance to self, and then they drive B cells to proliferate into plasma cells and memory B cells that are autoreactive. The plasma cells start secreting ANCA autoantibodies. These ANCA autoantibodies will latch onto MPO and PR3 on the neutrophil cell surfaces and within the neutrophil granules, and they actually activate the neutrophils. This activates the alternative complement pathway, including C5A. The neutrophils then hone to the blood vessels, especially small blood vessels within the kidneys and the respiratory tract in particular, but anywhere really. And then these activated neutrophils will degranulate to release reactive oxygen species, inflammatory mediators, net formation, blah, 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 all the damaging stuff. So it really does seem like ANCA antibodies themselves are pathogenic in this condition. 
Now, eventually you, the hero or heroine, will treat the patient with immunosuppression. After you diagnose the condition, you'll correct the neutrophil dysfunction and you'll save the patient's life. Bravo. But, you know when you watch an action movie and you think everything's great because the hero killed the villain, got the girl, they're walking away into the sunset and it's going to be happily ever after? But uh uh-oh, the villain's eyes open again. Or the eggs hatch like at the end of Godzilla. Well, ankyvasculitis is kind of the same because there are memory B cells which will persist and they'll lead to relapses in the future. Relapses are frequent in ANCA-associated vasculitis. Now, before we finish with pathophysiology, I'm just going to mention that GPA and MPA pathophys are different compared to eGPA in that the underlying innate immune cell driving the process in MPA and GPA is neutrophils. Whereas in eGPA, it's eosinophils, which makes sense, right? Because it's eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis. But again, we're going to elaborate more on eGPA at the end of today's episode. Risk factors. As usual, this autoimmune disease is the interplay of environmental factors within a genetically susceptible host. Risk factors include age. We know what happens in middle age to older individuals, 40s to 70s for GPA and MPA, a little bit younger, 30s to 50s for eGPA. Ethnicity, as I mentioned previously, white individuals are more likely to get GPA. East Asians are more likely to get MPA. Infections. So we see a cyclical spike in GPA in the winters, consistent with the increased frequency of infections. And we've also seen that rates of staph aureus nasal carriage are higher in those with GPA. Occupational exposures are also risk factors like silica or pesticides have been implicated in the UK farming community. And smoking was recently found to be a risk factor by the Mass Gen Group in Boston. Clinical presentation. ANCA-associated vasculitis syndromes can either present as slowly grumbling disease syndromes or, bam, as acute organ-threatening diseases. These are multisystemic diseases which present virtually in any organ system with granulomatous or necrotizing vasculitis. ENT, lungs, kidneys, eyes, skin, central and peripheral nervous systems, heart, musculoskeletal organs, these can all be affected by ANCA-associated vasculitis. The disease type, meaning GPA versus MPA versus eGPA, and the presence of specific ANCA antibodies, so PR3 ANCA versus MPO ANCA, are associated with different rates of specific organ manifestations. So for example, renal-limited ANCA or ILD-limited ANCA tends to be MPO ANCA positive. So let's get into the specific manifestations system by system, and we'll start with systemic symptoms. Most ANCA patients will have systemic symptoms. Fatigue, malaise, fevers, weight loss, arthralgias, these are really common and can precede other manifestations by weeks to months. Next, let's move on to the ears, nose, and throat. ANCA commonly affects this area, particularly with GPA and eGPA. MPA not as much, but it's still not uncommon. Symptoms would include rhinitis, epistaxis, nasal crusting, sinusitis, hoarseness and strider, ear aches, other inner ear issues like hearing loss and vertigo. And I know they don't sound very dangerous, more just annoying. 
But if you leave inflammation in the ears, nose, and throat untreated, then chronic damage can accrue. And you can be left with things like saddle nose deformity, especially in GPA, or nasal septal perforations, or subglottic stenosis. And while we're on the head and neck topic, I'll also just mention ocular disease, which is particularly common in GPA and can include granulomatous retroorbital masses, which is why ankyovasculitis is a differential for IgG4-related disease. You can also get anterior uveitis, retinal vasculitis, optic neuritis, a few different things. Moving down then to the lungs, inflammation in the lungs can include capillaritis, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, pulmonary infiltrates, ILD, nodules, and especially with GPA, these nodules can actually become cavitary. Lung disease is particularly common in eGPA and GPA. And actually, the majority of GPA patients will have both upper and lower respiratory symptoms. They'll often present with shortness of breath, cough, hemoptysis, wheeze, and strider. And like I've said before, we'll be talking more about eGPA at the end, but I'll just briefly mention that a major part of this eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis is asthma. Moving down a little further, let's talk about kidneys. MPA and GPA will both affect the kidneys a ton, 90% of MPA patients and 80% of GPA patients. eGPA, on the other hand, only rarely affects the kidneys. Typically, renal disease presents as an RPGN, rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis. Patients will have oliguria, hematuria, proteinuria, and hypertension. This is especially true in PR3 ANCA positive patients. But it can also be a little slower with a slow progression to end stage renal disease. And this is more common in MPO ANCA positive patients. Interstitial nephritis can also occur, but it's much less common. If we switch organs to skin, you can get a number of rashes and ankyovasculitis, particularly with eGPA and GPA. The classic vasculitic rash is palpable petechial or purpural rashes, secondary to a leukocytoclastic vasculitis. But you can also get levito reticularis, you can get necrotizing rashes, you can get urticaria in eGPA, and there are others too. Switching to the neurologic system, Patients can get a pachymeningitis, but in the peripheral nervous system, eGPA in particular can wreak a lot of havoc. Patients can get mononeuritis multiplex because of vasculitis affecting the vasovasorum, so they might present with a foot drop or with sensory loss. Patients can also just get a peripheral neuropathy. When discussing the cardiovascular system, it's also not spared from ANCA-associated vasculitis. DVTs and PEs are common, particularly with MPA. There's also a really big burden of coronary artery disease and ANCA-associated vasculitis. And eosinophilic cardiomyopathy is a scary manifestation of eGPA. And lastly, we'll just discuss musculoskeletal manifestations of ANCA-associated vasculitis. This is particularly common with GPA, and patients generally present with inflammatory arthritis that's often migratory. So I know I just threw a lot of information your way, but let's summarize to see if we can consolidate that knowledge a little better. ANCA-associated vasculitides are multi-system conditions. They can be acute or slowly grumbling. All of them cause systemic symptoms, 
but the disease types and antibodies are associated with different frequencies of organ involvement. GPA is mostly associated with the PR3 ANCA antibody. It causes upper and lower respiratory and renal disease. Upper respiratory tract symptoms can include sinonasal disease, and if the inflammation is not kept in check, you can end up with severe cartilaginous destruction resulting in things like saddle nose deformities. Lung manifestations include pulmonary hemorrhage, granulomatous inflammation, and cavitary lung lesions. Glomerulonephritis is common and usually presents as an RPGN, and retroorbital masses and migratory inflammatory arthritis are also seen more commonly with this ANCA-associated vasculitis. MPA, on the other hand, is kind of the opposite of GPA in some ways. It's mostly associated with the MPO-ANCA antibody. Renal involvement is super common, 90% of patients, and ENT manifestations are much less common than in GPA. Finally, eGPA is only sometimes associated with ANCAs, and when it is, it's usually an MPO ANCA. It's quite unique overall, so we'll touch on it at the end, but these patients briefly are asthmatics with upper and lower airway disease and possible cardiac and neurologic manifestations. Some patients can have a bit of an overlap too. For example, if you have anti-GBM patients who also have MPO ANCA glomerulonephritis, but I don't think we really need to delve into that right now. Finally, just before we leave clinical presentation alone and head to workup, I'm just going to very quickly mention two scoring systems. The first is BVAS or Birmingham Vasculitis Activity Score. It's a research tool and that's all you need to know. The second tool is the Factor V score. It's a little more clinically relevant. It was developed by the French and it's used to prognosticate small vessel vasculitis. Practically speaking, it's used more for eGPA in treatment decision-making, not really used in GPA or MPA. There are five criteria. I don't think you need to memorize this. You can Google it very easily. These five criteria are age over 65, renal failure, GI involvement, cardiac involvement, and the absence of ENT disease because usually ENT involvement is a good prognostic marker. The higher your score, the higher your mortality. And a score of two is severe disease. Workup. After a solid history and physical examination, you do your workup. So let's start with the ANCA antibodies. These are antibodies to MPO and PR3, the neutrophil proteins we talked about earlier. We call them MPO ANCA and PR3 ANCA, respectively. 95% of GPA and MPA patients are ANCA positive. So if you do a little bit of math, you're right to extrapolate that 5% of GPA and MPA are actually ANCA negative. To hammer this home, you can still have GPA and MPA, but negative ANCAs. When they are present, GPA patients, the majority of the time, are gonna be PR3 ANCA positive, but they can be MPO ANCA positive as well. By contrast, the majority of your MPA patients are going to be MPO ANCA positive, MPA, MPO. But some can also be PR3 positive. eGPA is a totally different story. About two-thirds of these patients are ANCA negative. When ANCA is positive, though, they're usually MPO ANCA positive. So I'm going to just say this one last time. A negative ANCA does not by any means 
rule out ANCA-associated vasculitis. When you're testing for ANCAs, there are two methods. The first is immunofluorescence, and the second is ELISA. In immunofluorescence, we're just looking for staining patterns. There are two types we look for, cytoplasmic ANCA, also known as C-ANCA, and perinuclear ANCA, also known as P-ANCA. C-ANCA is more specific for PR3 ANCA, versus a perinuclear or P-ANCA is associated more with MPO ANCA antibodies. ELISA, on the other hand, is more specific. It's an antigen-specific assay, and it will identify specific proteins. Usually, these are PR3 ANCA or MPO ANCA. There are some other ones too, like LAMP2, L-A-M-P, like a light LAMP2. But even after years of studying them and trying to make them useful, they're still not of much clinical utility. However, if for whatever reason your exam says, please list different antibodies for ANCA, you can say, PR3 ANCA, MPO ANCA, and even LAMP2 ANCA. Now you should also know that neither ELISA nor immunofluorescence are totally specific. For example, you can see ANCAs in a few other conditions. Here are just a few of them. Infections like infective endocarditis or tuberculosis, autoimmune hepatitis, inflammatory bowel disease, cystic fibrosis, medications like hydralazine or PTU for the thyroid, and levimisole, which is an adulterant for cocaine. Even other connective tissue diseases or rheumatoid arthritis can rarely show ANCAs. Now, generally, there are some hints in these situations that'll help you determine that they're false positives. Firstly, MPO ANCAs are much likelier to be false positives than PR3 ANCAs. Secondly, if there's discordance between the ELISA and the immunofluorescence, So for example, the ELISA says PR3 ANCA, but the pattern is P ANCA, then you'd also suspect false positive ANCA. And lastly, if the immunofluorescence pattern shows a quote-unquote atypical ANCA, it's also a false positive. Now there are some exceptions to this. For example, endocarditis can have both a positive MPO and PR3 ANCA. And levimisole-induced vasculitis kind of looks like a Christmas tree on the antibody profile. MPO ANCA is positive, PR3 ANCA can be positive, ANA can be positive, lupus anticoagulant might show up to the party. And while we're on the topic, I'll just briefly describe levimisole-induced vasculitis to you in case you see a patient with cocaine use and vasculitis or in case it shows up on your exam. These patients tend to get aggressive skin lesions with necrosis. They can get ear lesions with necrosis midline lesions in the nose, including on the tip of the nose with necrosis, severe ischemia and resulting necrosis of the digits, and even leukopenia. If you're a visual learner, it's worth Googling levimisole-induced vasculitis. So after that little tangent, let's get back to blood work, investigations for ankyvasculitis. So you sent off your ANCAs, ideally both immunofluorescence and ELISA, but if you can only choose one, ELISA, because it's more specific. You'll now send off a CBC looking for anemia. You'll send off a creatinine in case there's renal involvement. Urinalysis along the same lines, looking for blood or protein or RBC casts in the case of glomerulonephritis. Inflammatory markers are nonspecific, but they are generally elevated. And if there's concern for overlap, you might want to send off an anti-GBM or an ANA, like we mentioned previously. And finally, for blood tests, blood cultures are helpful to rule out endocarditis. 
So that's labs. How about imaging? Well, chest x-ray is good, but CT chest really is the much more sensitive modality. You can see pulmonary nodules, potentially cavitating lung lesions, especially for GPA. You can see infiltrates or airspace disease, ILD. And along the same lines, if you have ENT disease, CT head can be quite helpful. In GPA, for example, it can see retroorbital masses. And you can also see mucosal thickening that's consistent with paranasal sinus disease. Finally, after you've done your labs and you've done your imaging, in an ideal world, you'll also try to get a biopsy. If you have a very classic clinical presentation with positive ANCAs, you may not need a biopsy. However, they can be very helpful for confirming diagnosis and estimating prognosis. And certainly the ULAR guidelines support getting a biopsy when you can and if the risk-benefit ratios align. Target sites for biopsy include the kidneys, which might show a posse-immune glomerulonephritis, the skin for leukocytoclastic vasculitis, the lungs might show a pneumonitis, or nasal passages that could show granulomatous rhinitis. But the yield of biopsy kind of varies by site. So for example, upper respiratory samples frequently just show nonspecific inflammation, and therefore they're not the go-to biopsy site. Practically speaking, the two most common targets are the skin, showing a leukocytoclastic vasculitis. It's not specific, but it can certainly be supportive of ankyovasculitis in the right clinical context. Or the kidneys, which most often show a posse-immune glomerulonephritis. When you're reading pathology's report, it'll generally show fibrinoid necrosis and inflammation of small blood vessels. The larger ones can also be affected. Granulomas can be very helpful when you see them because they're consistent with GPA. And when there's eosinophils as well, it's consistent with eGPA. And when you're looking at the renal biopsy reports, you'll frequently see the words posseimmune glomerulonephritis, which means little to no immunoglobulin or complement deposition, which is kind of interesting because it's an antibody positive disease. The other fun fact about kidney biopsies is that even in GPA, which is a granulomatous disease, granulomas are only rarely seen in biopsies. We'll just take a few extra seconds here. It's worth spending the time to discuss renal biopsies given how often we perform them in ankyovasculitis and the relatively recent histologic classification that's come out around ankyoglomerulonephritis. Biopsies can show quote-unquote focal, crescentic, sclerotic, or mixed disease. Focal, crescentic, sclerotic, or mixed The description of focal on a biopsy just means that most glomeruli are normal. These patients have relatively normal lab parameters, and they're mostly asymptomatic, and it's associated with a very good outcome. Almost none of these patients will progress to end-stage renal disease when they're started on therapy. Crescentic GN, then, is where most glomeruli show crescents. That's just proliferation of cells and fibrinous tissue into Bowman's capsule. And sclerotic glomerulonephritis is where most of the glomeruli are globally sclerosed. This is associated with a very poor outcome and poor survival. Mixed is kind of a mix of the other three. Moving on to airway biopsies then. In the upper airways, you should know that the yield can be quite low and just show nonspecific inflammatory changes. However, if you do manage to catch granulomatous inflammation or multinucleated giant cells, it can be supportive of GPA or eGPA. And for the lower respiratory tract or lungs, transbronchial biopsy has a very low yield. 
Bronchoscopy is not a totally useless investigation, but it's more for ruling out differentials like infection. Instead, to get a good chunk of tissue to make a diagnosis of vasculitis, you either need an open biopsy or a VATS biopsy. And with that chunk of tissue, you'll see capillaritis if it's from MPA, or you might see granulomatous vasculitis if it's from GPA. Classification. So there are no diagnostic criteria for vasculitis. We have classification criteria. This is meant for creating a cohort of homogeneous patients for studies, not for diagnostic purposes. Instead, you can make the diagnosis of vasculitis when you have a clinical phenotype that fits and when you've got some kind of confirmation from either biopsy or serologies, and you've ruled out other differentials such as infections. Once you're reasonably sure, you can start treatment empirically. You don't need to wait for biopsy given how important early treatment is. And as long as your biopsy is done shortly after treatment initiation, you'll often still see changes consistent with vasculitis to help you clinch that diagnosis. And so with that introduction, I'll briefly talk about the updated 2012 Chapel Hill Consensus Criteria. They describe ankyvasculitis as a necrotizing vasculitis with few or no immune deposits, aka posse immune, predominantly affecting small vessels associated with MPO anca or PR3 anca. And they specify that not all patients have anca positivity. They describe three vasculitis syndromes within ankyvasculitis, just like we've talked about. The first is GPA a necrotizing granulomatous inflammation usually involving the upper and lower respiratory tract, and necrotizing vasculitis affecting predominantly small to medium vessels. Necrotizing glomerulonephritis is common in GPA. MPA they describe as a necrotizing vasculitis as well, with few or no immune deposits, again, posse immune. Necrotizing arteritis involving small and medium arteries may be present, Necrotizing glomerulonephritis is very common. Pulmonary capillaritis often occurs, and granulomatous inflammation is absent in MPA. And lastly, they describe eGPA as eosinophil rich and necrotizing granulomatous inflammation, often involving the respiratory tract, and necrotizing vasculitis predominantly affecting small to medium vessels as well. eGPA is associated with asthma and eosinophilia. And when glomerulonephritis is present, ANCA is also more frequent. Quiz time. Is the immunofluorescent staining pattern of P ANCA associated with MPO ANCA positivity or PR3 ANCA positivity? MPO ANCA. P ANCA and MPO ANCA go hand in hand. And is MPO ANCA or PR3 ANCA more commonly seen in GPA. PR3 ANCA is more commonly seen in GPA, whereas MPO ANCA is seen in two-thirds of patients with MPA. So MPO, MPA, they go hand in hand. GPA, PR3, they go hand in hand. Next question. Is it MPA or GPA that tends to involve both the upper and lower respiratory tracts? GPA. And this last question is kind of a multi-pronged one. So we know that ANCA-associated vasculitis is a multi-systemic disease, meaning that in addition to its constitutional symptoms, it can also target a variety of organs. So I'm gonna name a few different organ systems, and for each of them, I want you to try and give me at least one or two disease manifestations. Here we go, ENT. 
So between GPA and MPA, GPA affects the ears, nose, and throat way more commonly. In fact, 90% of patients with GPA will have ENT manifestations. And they can vary from rhinitis to epistaxis to nasal crusting to sinusitis to hoarseness. And if you've got inflammation that's chronically unchecked, then patients can develop chronic cartilaginous abnormalities like saddle nose deformity, nasal septal perforations, and subglottic stenosis. Okay, next set of organs is the lungs. So in the lungs, patients can get capillaritis, they can get diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, they can get ILD, and they can get nodules. And particularly with GPA, these nodules can cavitate. Next organ system, the kidneys. So ankyvasculitis commonly causes rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, RPGN. But it can be slower too, especially if the patient is MPO positive. And that's both for MPA and GPA. Although it's extremely common in MPA. Okay, now how about the eyes? Can you think of any manifestations of ankyvasculitis there? Well, GPA in particular affects the eyes and most classically causes a retroorbital mass. However, patients can also get uveitis or optic neuritis. The next organ is the skin. And ANCA can do a number of things really, but the most classic one is the non-blanchable palpable purpuric vasculitic rash. Okay, how about the nervous system? Well, patients can get mononeuritis and pachymeningitis, but neurologic manifestations are much less common than they are in eGPA, which we're going to talk about at the end. And finally, what about the musculoskeletal system? Well, GPA in particular can cause a migratory inflammatory arthritis. Management. Right now, we're going to talk about management of MPA and GPA. EGPA is kind of unique and it's going to get its own section at the end. When discussing ankyvasculitis management, we divide it into induction phase and the remission phase. The goal is to start induction therapy as soon as it's a reasonable probability that ANCA is your diagnosis and not delay for biopsy because biopsy will still usually remain positive if performed within the days after starting induction therapy. And induction therapy will last a total of three to six months. You need two drugs during induction, steroids plus one more. So let's start with the steroids. These will kick in quickly. The average dose is one milligram per kg per day to start, and then you taper. If you have more severe disease, you can start off with a pulse for three days, meaning 500 to 1,000 milligrams IV daily for three days, and then go back down to your standard oral doses before tapering. And that raises the question, how fast do we taper steroids in the olden days when you were using Facebook instead of Instagram? We used to use a slow taper. 60 milligrams a day for two weeks, 50 milligrams a day for two weeks, 40 milligrams a day for two weeks, and even slower when you got to 30. But that was the olden days. Then February of 2020 hit, and the New England Journal published a pretty groundbreaking trial called the PEXIVAS trial, P-E-X-I-V-A-S. PEXIVAS compared the old-fashioned taper with the much more rapid taper that went 60 milligrams for one week, down to 30 milligrams for one week, down to 25 milligrams for a couple weeks, 
And what they were able to do overall was reduce the cumulative steroid dose by about 50%. Despite that, they had equal efficacy between the two steroid tapering regimens. But they did notice that with the lower steroid dose, there was an overall lower risk of significant infections. So that's steroids, but if you recall, I said you need a second drug on top of steroids for induction therapy. Choosing that drug comes down to the severity of their disease. If they have organ or life-threatening disease, you'll choose either rituximab or cyclophosphamide. And if they have non-organ or life-threatening disease, then you'll go for methotrexate or mycophenolate. To give you some examples of organ or life-threatening disease, I'm referring to glomerulonephritis, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, neurologic disease, orbital pseudotumors, and this applies to whether it's new onset disease or relapse disease. Okay, so let's discuss cyclophosphamide. You can give it PO or IV, but almost nobody gives it PO nowadays, and the reason is because of a trial called the Cyclops trial, C-Y-C-L-O-P-S, Cyclops. That trial compared IV and oral dosing head-to-head. Overall, they found that there were similar long-term survival outcomes and renal outcomes between the two groups, but that the oral regimen ended up with more leukopenia. And full disclosure, they also ended up with a trend toward higher relapse rates in the IV group. But cyclophosphamide is a pretty dirty drug, and the ability to reduce the cumulative drug dose was quite compelling. Various regimens can be used for cyclophosphamide, but a common one in vasculitis is 15, 1,5 milligrams per kg every two weeks for three doses, and then every three weeks after that, continuing for a total of three to six months. You adjust the dose if the patient's got poor renal function or if they're over 60 years old. It can be kind of tricky, and I personally always like involving my pharmacist in the dosing. If you're going to prescribe cyclophosphamide, you also want to prescribe lots of fluids and mesna, which is a uroprotective drug that lowers the risk of hemorrhagic cystitis and possibly also bladder cancer, two well-known side effects of cyclophosphamide that can occur within months or years of treatment. You should also prescribe patients antiemetics because cyclophosphamide can make people feel, what's a good way to put this? Mm, Not nice. So that's cyclophosphamide, kind of a dirty drug. But let's move on to rituximab, which has largely replaced cyclo in ankyvasculitis. And let's start by looking at the literature. There were two trials that basically ran in parallel that compared cyclophosphamide with rituximab. The bigger of the two was called RAVE, R-A-V-E. It was a North American trial that showed no difference in remission at six months between cyclophosphamide and rituximab. Further analysis also showed that rituximab probably worked better in those who had relapsing disease and in individuals who are PR3 ANCA positive. Now, the trouble with this trial is that they excluded individuals with a creatinine over 350 micromoles per liter. In the United States, that's over 4.0 milligrams per deciliter. And they excluded anybody who was intubated from diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. So you couldn't totally base your treatment decisions off of RAVE alone because if you have a patient with quite severe disease, the RAVE findings may not be as applicable. And this is why it's nice to have the second trial called RITUXVAS, R-I-T-U-X-V-A-S. And they actually included patients with severe renal disease, including nine patients on dialysis at the start of the trial. They had kind of an interesting protocol where patients either got standard cyclophosphamide for three to six months, or they had two shots of cyclo in addition to rituximab. And this is what a lot of us do while we're waiting to get approval, 
or funding for rituximab, we start off with a little bit of cyclo and then transition to rituximab when we get the drug approved. They showed equal outcomes in both groups and that even the majority of dialysis patients went into remission and five of them got off dialysis by the end of the trial. And this is important because it suggests that rituximab is as good as cyclophosphamide even in severe disease. And in terms of dosing rituximab, experts are using both the 375 milligrams per meter squared or the one gram two weeks apart dosing. So now that we've discussed both drugs, cyclophosphamide and rituximab, that are used in individuals with organ-threatening and life-threatening disease, how do you decide between the two? Well, cyclophosphamide is known to be a bit of a dirty drug because it's a myelosuppressing drug, it causes nausea, fertility concerns, bladder cancer and hemorrhagic cystitis, it predisposes to infections, etc. So you might want to use rituximab if you have a young man or woman who's concerned about their fertility. You might want to use rituximab if you have a frail elderly individual in whom you're really concerned about adverse effects of drugs. And based on the post hoc data from RAVE, individuals who have relapsing disease or PR3 ANCA positivity would probably benefit from rituximab more than cyclophosphamide. On the other hand, from a practical perspective, rituximab is expensive. Though it's dropped recently in price, it's still not cheap. Some governments like that in Ontario, Canada have approved it for funding in ankyovasculitis, but for many patients around the world, accessing it can be very difficult. Also, if you have a patient who has diffuse alveolar hemorrhage that required intubation, you may want to use cyclophosphamide because it wasn't really evaluated in RAVE and wasn't evaluated in great numbers in rituxvas. So you might think of cyclophosphamide as an insurance policy here. From a practical perspective, If you are going to try and get rituximab approved, it's not unreasonable to give one or two doses of cyclophosphamide, kind of like they did in the rituxvas protocol while awaiting rituximab funding. So those are the drugs for induction therapy of organ and life-threatening disease, cyclophosphamide and rituximab. If the patient has non-organ or non-life-threatening disease, you can instead consider methotrexate or mycophenolate. But how do you know if you're supposed to treat for three or six months, because I've said the induction therapy duration is supposed to be between three and six months. Well, you keep on reassessing your patient, and if at the three-month mark you're slowing down your prednisone taper more than you want to, or your inflammatory markers are starting to climb again, and or the patient's got clinical features of disease coming back out, then you want to extend your treatment course closer to the six-month mark rather than three. And finally, before we finish with induction therapy and move on to maintenance therapy, I just want to mention plasma exchange or PLEX. We used to think that PLEX could be helpful for improving renal outcomes because it's been used for a long time successfully in other crescentic glomerulonephritis, such as GBM, especially because ANCA antibodies themselves are pathologic, so it makes sense that it would work. However, PEXIVAS, that same trial that looked at steroid dosing from February 2020, also looked at the role of PLEX, and the authors concluded that PLEX is actually not helpful. They specifically studied the sickest patients. They looked at individuals with severe ANCA disease, so GFR less than 50, or diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, and they followed them up for a long time, up to seven years in some cases. Their primary outcome was death from any cause or end-stage renal disease, and they concluded that there was no difference whether you gave patients PLEX or no PLEX. However, we should talk a little bit about this. 
because if you look at the manuscript itself, the Kaplan-Meier curve for the primary outcome did show a difference in survival and renal outcomes in the first two years that did favor Plex. So on your exam, the answer is that Plex does not offer benefit. But in real life, Pexivas just showed us that there's probably a less broad indication for Plex at this time. And we're going to get harder guidelines for this in the next year or two. But until then, it wouldn't be unreasonable if you wanted to use Plex in patients who had severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage because they were an underrepresented group in this trial or in patients who have very severe renal failure, like a creatinine over 500 micromoles per liter, or in the United States, over 5.7 milligrams per deciliter, as long as they don't already have extensive global sclerosis on their renal biopsy. So that's it for induction therapy. In conclusion, everybody gets steroids. According to the Paxivas trial, we're tapering much faster than we used to with the same outcomes. If you have somebody who has organ or life-threatening disease, you choose cyclophosphamide, or more commonly nowadays, if you can access it, rituximab. If they do not have organ or life-threatening disease, methotrexate or mycophenolate. Pexivas also showed us that there is a much less broad indication for Plex than there used to be. And on your exam, the answer is Plex does not offer benefit. So now moving on to maintenance therapy. You want to maintain remission without drug toxicity and with the lowest dose of ongoing steroids as possible though many patients will need ongoing steroids. Options traditionally have included methotrexate, azathioprine, and MMF. But recently, the data seems to be in favor of rituximab as the supreme medication for maintaining remission. Probably the first trial supporting this was the main Ritzen trial in 2005 in the New England Journal. It was conducted by the French vasculitis group who compared rituximab only 500 milligrams every six months with azathioprine until month 22. And then they checked in again with these patients at 28 months, and there was a clear and staggering difference in relapse rates. In the azathioprine group, 29% of patients relapsed, whereas in the rituximab group, only 5% relapsed. And yet there were similar severe infection risks in both groups. So if you can get rituximab 500 milligrams IV every six months for your patients for maintenance therapy, that's a great strategy. Now, I'll just warn you, there's another trial called the MINE-RITZAN-2 that pushed it a little bit further, and they said, well, let's just infuse patients with rituximab when it looks like their B-cell function is coming back, not on a fixed schedule of every six months. And so they based the decision to infuse on the patient's CD19 levels and their anchotiters, and they found what they called a quote-unquote non-inferior relapse rate between the two groups. But in fact, the total number of relapses were higher in this tailored infusion group compared with the fixed schedule group. It just wasn't statistically significant. And in fact, half of all relapses in the MINE-RITZEN-2 trial were in patients who had negative CD19 levels at the time of their relapse. This hopefully highlights for you that checking ANCAs and CD19 levels is not perfect. It just offers one puzzle piece that should be considered in your overall decision-making for your patients with ANCA vasculitis. Now, before we're done with the MINE-RITZEN trial series, there's MINE-RITZEN trial number three that try to answer the question, how long should we keep patients with ankyvasculitis on maintenance therapy? According to the ULAR 2016 recommendations, the optimal duration is two years. Meinritzen tested that theory. They looked at patients who had 18 months of sustained remission and randomized them to rituximab versus placebo for two extra years. And what they found was a pretty solid difference in the rates of sustained remission. 
96% of patients with prolonged rituximab therapy had sustained remission versus only 74% had sustained remission if they were on placebo. So what's the conclusion after all of this for maintenance therapy? Well, you can use azathioprine, methotrexate, MMF, or even better, rituximab. Only 500 milligrams required every six months. You can factor in the CD19 levels or the ANCA titers, but as MindRitzN2 showed us, they're not perfect. And in terms of duration, ULAR recommends two years of sustained remission before stopping maintenance therapy. But if you want to, you can push it a couple extra years according to the main Ritzen 3 trial. Before we completely finish off with the drugs, just a few housekeeping things. Firstly, do not forget to screen your rituximab patients for hepatitis. Secondly, during induction therapy, please keep your patients on pneumocystis prophylaxis because there's a huge risk of infection in ankyovasculitis. Thirdly, patients with ANCA are at higher risk for venous thromboembolism, so strongly consider prophylaxis when they're admitted. Fourthly, we already talked about mesna and antiemetics when you're treating patients with cyclophosphamide. I should also bring up fertility. So fertility is a big deal in cyclophosphamide. It's bad for both male and female fertility. The higher the dose, the longer the duration, the older your patient, the higher the risk. And in women, it doesn't only mean infertility, but also premature ovarian failure through death of the ovaries. Women under 25 years old are unlikelier to get infertility. Women over 30 to 35 are at higher risk. The risk of infertility also climbs substantially when you're over 5 grams of cumulative cyclophosphamide, and we can exceed that dose pretty easily with vasculitis dosing protocols. So it's important to offer these women Lupron to preserve their fertility and ovarian function. Monitoring. So here's a question for you. Do you or do you not repeat ANCAs? Does it reflect a relapse? Increased risk of relapse, maybe? There is much controversy around this question, and ultimately it's not felt that ANCA titers accurately reflect disease activity. Therefore, I do not recommend you put it down on paper during your exams. However, in real life, some physicians do use this strategy, and it's not unreasonable, whereby they check ANCAs at the end of induction therapy. And if the ANCAs remain positive, then the patient may be at greater risk of relapse. Down the road during their maintenance phase, if you check the ANCAs and they become positive from negative, it may represent a higher risk of relapse. Or if the ANCAs were positive after induction and they now climb more than fourfold, that may represent a higher risk of relapse. Along the same lines of a test that's not 100% useful are CD19 levels, which are surrogate markers for B cell levels in the blood. And they're sometimes checked if your patients are on rituximab. Specifically, physicians lean on them to help decide when to redose rituximab so that if the CD19 level is starting to climb again, one might extrapolate that B cells are coming back and it's time for another rituximab infusion. But as we saw from the MindRitzN2 trial, this is not a perfect strategy and is just one more puzzle piece within the overall clinical picture. Along with these blood tests, you'll also want to check CBC for cytopenias, inflammatory markers, LFTs for medication toxicity renal function in case the patient's starting to relapse, and urinalysis, both for renal relapse and also for complications from cyclophosphamide. 
That's a good introduction for me to say that the biggest issue with ANCA-associated vasculitis is the long-term risk of complications from the disease and immunosuppression. Nowadays, the main cause of death, in fact, is not active vasculitis, especially when you get past the first year. Nowadays, the main cause of death is infection, cardiovascular disease, and malignancy. So you really want to look out for side effects. For example, bladder cancer and hemorrhagic cystitis can occur in those who've received cyclophosphamide, especially if they've been exposed to over 10 grams cumulative dosing of cyclo. Thankfully, we're seeing way less of this nowadays for two reasons. Firstly, we've pushed away from cyclophosphamide and are starting to use rituximab much more. And secondly, even in those who are getting cyclophosphamide, we're largely abandoning oral dosing for the lower dose IV pulses. And lastly, if you have patients who've been treated with rituximab and they get repeated infections, then ULAR recommends checking quantitative immunoglobulins before the next retreatment. Prognosis. In terms of mortality and survival, nature has set a pretty low bar to compete with. There is a 90% rate of death at two years if patients are not treated for their ankyvasculitis. With current day management, we've got it down to 20%. However, that obviously is still higher than the average population. And interestingly, as I've said before, it's not the vasculitis itself, but infections, malignancy, cardiovascular disease that really increase the mortality in these patients. Vasculitis just makes up a small minority of these deaths, especially past the first year. When discussing prognosis, we should also discuss relapse rates. And I will say that relapses are very common in ankyvasculitis, such that 40%, almost half of individuals with ankyvasculitis will have at least one relapse at some point. This is especially true for patients who are PR3 positive or those individuals who have GPA, those individuals with upper respiratory tract involvement, and obviously those individuals who've relapsed once before. Staph aureus nasal carriage may also portend a higher risk of relapse. Somewhat counterintuitively, even though PR3 ANCA and GPA have a higher risk of relapse, overall they've got a better prognosis. Some extra stuff. There are just two drugs that I'm going to mention very quickly. The first is Benlista or Belimumab. That's more commonly used in lupus. It's being tested currently as an add-on therapy to rituximab. So we'll see the results for that hopefully soon. Now, the second and much more interesting therapy that's being tested currently is Avacopan, A-V-A-C-O-P-A-N, Avacopan. It is an oral small molecule C5A receptor inhibitor that's had very positive results in both phase two and phase three trials. Now, it's kind of weird we're talking about a complement inhibitor, in my opinion, because ankyvasculitis is posse immune and patients are normal complementemic. So it's not like you're losing a bunch of complement down to the glomeruli during glomerulonephritis. So most of us wouldn't have suspected a role for complement inhibition years ago. And yet, Avacapan seems to be killing it. I'll just give you an example from one trial called the Advocate Trial that looked at induction and remission rates between two groups, those who were treated with Avacapan and those who were treated with standard of care, steroids. They found that by week 26, there was no difference between the two groups. And by week 52, Avacapan was actually superior to steroids, such that there was a 12.5% difference between the two groups. And Avacapan also beat out steroids in every secondary endpoint, including quality of life, relapse rates, glucocorticoid toxicity index, recovery of renal function, 
And to top it all off, in this trial, there were no adverse effect implications for avacapan compared to prednisone. I don't think the Rheumatology Royal College is going to ask you about this, especially not trial data for avacapan, but I do think it's fair game for them to ask whether C5A receptor inhibition therapy is a good strategy for ANCA-associated vasculitis. Quiz time. Okay, so question one. The PEXIVAS trial study in February of 2020, that study that kind of differentiated the olden days from the new days, that trial examined two different things, steroid tapering regimens and the efficacy of PLEX or plasma exchange in ankyvasculitis. What were its two conclusions? Firstly, they found that rapid steroid tapering in ANCA was non-inferior to the old-fashioned slow tapers. Secondly, they found that plasma exchange did not prevent death from any cause or end-stage kidney disease. Question two, can you name five causes of a positive ANCA antibody that are not GPA, MPA, or eGPA? Give you a couple seconds to just think. All right, IBD, especially ulcerative colitis, autoimmune hepatitis, cystic fibrosis, infective endocarditis, TB, connective tissue disease, drugs. And if you said drugs, can you name three or four specific agents? Hydralazine, PTU, TNF inhibitors, and minocycline are probably some of the most commonly known ones. Okay, question three. What is the initial management of GPA? Okay, there are two phases to therapy, induction, then maintenance. For induction therapy, everybody gets steroids, usually one milligram per kg per day, tapering as described in the PEXIVAS trial. If the patient's got severe disease, you might want to start with a pulse, which is 500 to 1,000 milligrams IV daily for three days. Patients also need cytotoxic agents to accompany the steroids during induction. If it's organ or life-threatening disease, then cyclophosphamide, or even more commonly nowadays, rituximab. And that's especially true if the patient's got PR3 ANCA positivity, or if they have relapsing disease, in which case rituximab has been shown to be superior to cyclophosphamide in further analyses of the big trials. This induction segment continues for three to six months and should include PJP prophylaxis. The second arm of therapy then is maintenance. You can pick from a few different agents, MMF, methotrexate, azathioprine, but nowadays if you can get your hands on it, then rituximab seems to be ideal. 500 milligrams every six months. CD19 levels may be helpful in guiding when to redose rituximab, but don't hang your hat on it as we found in the MindRitzan 2 trial. The maintenance phase should continue for anywhere between two and four years. Next question. What is the mechanism of action of a vacopan? It is the C5A receptor antagonist that's blowing steroids out of the water in ANCA-associated vasculitis trials. And lastly, can you describe five features of levimazole-induced vasculitis? All right, here we go. Ischemia and necrosis of the fingers. Ischemia and necrosis of the ears. 
midline nasal lesions, including on the tip of the nose that can become necrotic. Painful purpuric vasculitic lesions that can become necrotic. And patients can also get leukopenias. EGPA can be a pretty challenging topic. Some people even have trouble just saying the words. Enjoy the following bloopers. Eosinophilic polyan... Oh. <laughs> Eosinophil- <laughs> Eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis. This condition was previously known as Churg-Strauss and is characterized by three things. Asthma, peripheral blood and organ eosinophilia, and small to medium vessel vasculitis. This is considered an ankyvasculitis, but most patients are in fact anka-negative. And there are some major differences between it, GPA, and MPA. Clinical presentation. Clinically, eGPA progresses in a triphasic manner. It starts with asthma and allergic rhinitis symptoms, then organ and blood eosinophilia, finally progressing to a frank granulomatous vasculitis. Before we get into specific organ manifestations, I just want to emphasize, asthma is a virtually universal feature for eGPA patients, and it tends to precede the rest of the syndrome by 10 years. So if you ever see a patient with eosinophilia and the question of eGPA comes up, your spidey senses should be tingling if they don't have a history of preceding asthma. Okay, now for specific organ manifestations. These are broad. Let's start with atopic head and neck symptoms. These are super common. This includes rhinorrhea, nasal congestion, sinus pressure headaches, nasal polyposis, all the allergic type stuff. Patients, interestingly, do not get necrotizing lesions of the head and neck the way they do in GPA. Moving on to the peripheral nervous system, peripheral neuropathy is very common, both in the form of mononeuritis multiplex, meaning multiple peripheral nerves being involved, and peripheral neuropathy with sensory motor deficits. The pulmonary system is also frequently affected and manifests with migratory patchy infiltrates, similar to eosinophilic pneumonitis. Diffuse alveolar hemorrhage and nodules, on the other hand, are much rarer than in other ankyvasculitis syndromes. But if the patient does have diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, they're more likely to be positive. Now, while we're in the thorax, let's also talk about the heart. Cardiac involvement occurs in about half of patients with eGPA and presents with anything from heart failure to myocarditis to MI to valvular heart disease. And it is the scary organ manifestation in eGPA because it accounts for half of all deaths in this disease. Speaking of serious organ manifestations, the gastrointestinal system can also be affected. It's less common, but it's characterized by eosinophilic infiltration of the luminal tract, causing pain, diarrhea, and even GI bleeds. The skin can also be involved in eGPA and can cause anything from subcutaneous nodules all the way to classic vasculitic rashes. And lastly, the kidneys. Now, unlike other ankyvasculitides, less than a quarter of patients will get glomerulonephritis. But when they do, it looks just like MPA or GPA on biopsy. And counterintuitively, you generally won't see a prominent eosinophilic infiltrate in the tissue. These patients with glomerulonephritis tend to be ANCA positive. Diagnosis. When it comes to diagnosing eGPA, it's a little harder than just GPA or MPA because ANCA antibodies are less common. 
less than half of patients with eGPA are going to be ANCA positive. So you really rely more on the clinical picture and eosinophil level. There are a few different classification criteria for eGPA, but the ACR 1991s are probably the most popular, and we're likely looking at a new iteration of them in the next year or two. I don't think you need to memorize these, but I'll just mention them because they'll reinforce the things we've talked about in terms of clinical manifestations. There are six in total. Asthma, paranasal sinus disease, migratory pulmonary infiltrates, neuropathy, eosinophilia over 10%, and a biopsy that shows extravascular eosinophilic infiltrates. It's important to have a broad differential for your eGPA patients. This includes things like drugs causing dress syndrome, infections from parasites, eosinophilic pneumonia, which can be kind of a tricky one because patients look well and may have a peripheral eosinophilia, but they don't have other organs involved allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, or ABPA, IgG4-related disease that can be accompanied by a peripheral eosinophilia, cancers or hematologic malignancies like Hodgkin's, idiopathic hyper-eosinophilic syndromes, and of course, the other ankyvasculitides. Workup. In terms of investigations, peripheral blood eosinophils are high in these patients. The median counts are over 8.0, or in the United States, that's over 8,000 per microliter. Patients also have high IgEs and can have elevated inflammatory markers. As we've already said, ANCAs are usually negative in eGPA patients, but when they are positive can correlate with specific disease manifestations, such as glomerulonephritis. And when negative, correlate with other specific disease manifestations, such as cardiac involvement. It's also a good idea to send off a troponin because if Pronouncedly elevated, it suggests a significant cardiac involvement. Chest imaging is super helpful because it's abnormal in the majority of patients. Chest x-ray can show a variety of things, including bilateral patchy opacities, which are migratory. And CT is even more sensitive. It can be of major value showing ground glass opacities or infiltrates that are patchy or migratory. Cavitary nodules can happen in eGPA, but nowhere near as common as in granulomatosis with polyangiitis. Now, because these patients tend to be seronegative, a biopsy really is ideal. I'm talking a biopsy of the skin, the kidneys, the peripheral nerves, an affected area of the lungs on CT, and the hallmark is necrotizing vasculitis affecting the small and medium-sized vessels, accompanied by eosinophilic infiltrates, and extravascular eosinophilic granulomas. It's just like the name says, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis. Management. When it comes to treatment, eGPA is definitely unique when contrasted with MPA and GPA. To be honest, it's a rare disease which is poorly represented in ANCA trials. So treatment practices are much less data-driven than in MPA or GPA. So let's start with induction. All patients will get steroids, and they're adequate for inducing remission in the vast majority of patients, even as monotherapy. We use the same doses as in the other ANCAs, but your taper is often delayed by a couple of months until you know that you're getting adequate remission. Now, unlike in MPA and GPA, eGPA patients don't necessarily need cytotoxic therapy to accompany the steroids during induction. 
unless the patient has severe disease. So for example, if they've got cardiac involvement, renal involvement, gastrointestinal involvement, or neurologic disease, you would consider that severe and you'd start them on a cytotoxic agent. Or if the patient has a factor five score of two, which as a reminder is a scoring system you can just Google that predicts mortality in small vessel vasculitis and that's much more commonly used in eGPA than in MPA or GPA. So that means basically that all patients will get induction therapy with steroids at the same doses as MPA or GPA, but their taper is delayed. And if the patient has severe disease, they'll also get cytotoxic therapy. Specifically, I'm talking about cyclophosphamide here. You'll notice I didn't say rituximab, but cyclophosphamide. And this is because the data for rituximab in eGPA induction therapy is not as robust as it is in the other ANCA vasculitides. Now, once you have started induction therapy and it looks like it's working, you'll start to taper the steroids. The trouble is that for the majority of individuals, it's really hard to get off steroids because relapses are super common to the point where ULAR now considers remission in eGPA as being at or less than 7.5 milligrams a day of prednisone. So that's the induction arm of therapy. Let's switch gears and talk about the maintenance arm. We use azathioprine and methotrexate commonly, but the data is not as clear for efficacy as it is in other ankyvasculitides. And there's proof for that because most patients still rely on chronic steroids as their risk of relapse remains high once they taper down to low doses or try to discontinue the steroids. Now, two biologics have offered some steroid-sparing hope. The first of those two is mepolizumab, an anti-IL-5 monoclonal antibody. M-E-P-O-L-I-Z-U-M-A-B, mepolizumab. It was evaluated in 2017 for relapsing or refractory eGPA patients who couldn't get below 7.5 milligrams a day of prednisone. The majority of these patients, just like our regular eGPA patients, were ANCA negative, and remission in that trial was defined as hitting 4 milligrams of prednisone a day, which as you recall is even lower than ULAR's threshold for remission in eGPA. Now, while mepolizumab was much more effective at getting patients into remission than in the placebo group, the remission here being four milligrams a day of prednisone as defined in this trial, the majority of patients still could not get there. However, many patients did get to 7.5 milligrams a day of prednisone, which is classically how ULAR has defined remission. And they did so with pretty minimal side effects. There was an increased risk of zoster and as an anti-IL-5, one might anticipate that there's a higher risk of parasitic infections like helminths, but overall was a pretty well-tolerated treatment and a great option going forward for your patients with eGPA. The second biologic then that might offer some steroids-bearing benefit is rituximab. I know I didn't mention it earlier in induction therapy, but for maintenance, it may work for patients who are ANCA-positive not those who are ANCA-negative eGPAs, but ANCA-positive, particularly those who have renal involvement. Now, as we wrap up with eGPA, it's worth noting some things about prognosis. I've already mentioned that most patients with eGPA have tremendous trouble getting off steroids, and most will require ongoing steroid therapy, even on mepolizumab. But it's also worth noting that asthma and ENT manifestations are common, and they can continue to be a real pain in the neck even after the vasculitis is treated, but their persistence does not represent ongoing vasculitic disease activity. 
quiz time. All right, guys, great job. Last couple questions of the day. Number one, is this classic for eGPA? A 45-year-old man with eosinophilia, neuropathy, and infiltrates in his lungs. He has no past medical history, including asthma. It is not typical for eGPA because almost all patients have asthma that precedes the rest of the syndrome by 10 years. Question two, what is the leading organ manifestation driving death in eGPA? Cardiac involvement. Question three, can you name five differentials for eGPA that cause peripheral eosinophilia? Here we go. Drugs, they can cause stress. Infections like parasite infections. Malignancies such as Hodgkin's lymphoma. Eosinophilic pneumonia. Allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis or ABPA. IgG4 related disease can sometimes cause a peripheral eosinophilia. And idiopathic hyper eosinophilic syndromes. And the last question today, Remember that most patients with eGPA have difficulty coming off steroids. Can you name the anti-IL-5 therapy that serves as a steroid-sparing agent and which, although not perfect, is still quite effective at reducing the steroid burden in this disease? Mepolizumab. And that's it for today, guys. Great job on making it through this topic. You deserve a well-earned break. If you enjoyed today's session, please subscribe. I would also tremendously appreciate your feedback in the form of an Apple podcast review, or feel free to email me with suggestions for future episodes, content accuracy, or sound issues. My email is roomforthearc, that's R-H-E-U-M-F-O-R-T-H-E-R-C at gmail.com. Have a great one.